let's get into some of the issues that you would be facing and addressing as a congressional representative term limits. I'm glad to hear you say that. I don't understand why it's so hard. I mean, I do understand why it's so hard to get term limits passed, but you know, I feel like if congressional representatives wanted to do something to really earn the trust of their constituents, they would impose term limits. I think that's Absolutely. This yeah. is just it, it, it's one of those things that I've talked about with, with others. And I, I can't uh, speak to uh, some of the uh, the congressmen that are currently in office in the, the greater Houston area, specifically on this one. But I've had many conversations with those in the, the greater Houston area. We all agree that change is difficult, especially for those in power. They don't want to give up that power. And when you became a career politician, it changes you. Not a career politician. Spent the first almost 50 years of my life serving. And it doesn't matter if it's my country or my community. I'm going to continue doing the same. Um, and I only want to do a certain amount of time. It almost sounds like a prison sentence. Uh, as an elected official, uh, as a congressman, that could be two, could be three terms. I'm not exactly sure. But I want to transition out of there. Could be up or could be out. I got out uh, and do some amazing things in the community because you don't have to be an elected official to get things done. And I've proven that over the last 16 years by banding together with so many different organizations and amazing people. Rotary International is just one of those. It's an apolitical group as people from both sides of the major two parties, but also the independents and tea parties as well and the libertarian parties. These are the guys and gals that get out in this 100-year organization, and they've eradicated polio around the world. They're the ones that build the the ramps for veterans in our community, do the food drives, and and make sure that we're having amazing things like Operation Turkey. Two years ago, we fed 6,000 people in Houston. Last year, 8,000. This year, we're on track to feed 10,000 people. This is not going down to George R. Brown and serving up a uh, sloppy Joe and a uh, ice cream scoop of potatoes. We roast these turkeys and smoke them, and these butterball birds get sent out to great families in the Houston area. So that's just one way. But when you look at uh, serving in the community, absolutely. Once you put a timeline on it, now it's a goal, not just a dream. This is episode number two thirty-eight with Tim Stroud. Welcome back, everyone, to the American Sippets Podcast. Once again, my name is Dave Brown. I'm here with my co-host and partner, Barbara Allen. And we have another incredible show for you today with Tim Stroud. But before we get to that, we'd like to recognize our sponsor, Minutemen Coffee, minutemencoffee.com. They are also the headline sponsor for our Great American Summit. This is coming to Irving, Texas, January 7th and 8th of 2022. Make sure you reserve your seat today by going to greatamericansummit.com. This is a two-day live event that will be the greatest celebration of freedom, capitalism, and patriotism in the country. It's for anyone who believes in our Constitution and its original intent to protect the hopes, dreams, and liberties of we, the American people. The Great American Summit features the best and brightest speakers in the country, over a dozen like-minded sponsoring organizations, 1,000 freedom-loving patriots just like you, and special performances that will move you at your core. 
Don't miss out. Reserve your seat while you still can. Go to greatamericansummit.com. And again, our headline sponsor for the event and for this podcast is Minutemen Coffee. They are coffee for we, the people. They are unapologetically patriotic. They stand with those who protect and defend our freedom and liberty from those who wish to take it from us. They have some of the finest quality coffee around. Each batch is custom crafted. You get the most for your money, and you can also join their exclusive coffee club. And the most important thing is it's coffee for a good cause. Just like our summit here, we're donating all our proceeds from the event to charities that support our veterans, our military, and first responders. And Minutemen Coffee does the same. A percentage of all their proceeds from their sales go directly to support our first responders and veteran communities nationwide. So go to MinutemenCoffee.com and order your coffee today. And just like Minuteman Coffee gives back to the first responder and veteran communities nationwide, there are a lot of ways to give back to our communities and our country, from serving on local school boards, local boards, volunteering in organizations that serve others, serving as a law enforcement officer or first responder or in the military. These are all just a few examples of outlets to be proactive in strengthening our communities and our country as well as creating a positive impact in the world beyond our own borders. And today's guest is not only from a family with a rich history of service, he's dedicated himself to various levels of service himself, from nonprofit organizations to a career as a combat medic. Tim Stroud is proud to carrying on his family's legacy. Now, Tim is committed to serve in a new capacity as a congressional representative for the people in Texas's 7th District. In this episode, Tim shares his personal story of losing his father to a line-of-duty death, the turbulent years that followed, losing his mother unexpectedly, and the path that led him to serve in the United States Army. He shares his views on some of the hottest topics concerning voters and his thoughts on the most pressing issues in our country today. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Tim Stroud. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen. As events unfold in this country and in this world, more and more Americans are beginning to wake up and pay attention for maybe the first time to the people who have been elected for public office. Um, I know a lot of us, myself included, I was extremely complacent about this in the past because I didn't really believe or feel that there was a need for me to get involved. These people were elected. They were elected to do what they were supposed to do. I didn't understand politics. It bored the crap out of me. It had, quote, nothing to do with me anyway, because I was so busy living my life, first getting my degrees, then raising my family, then uh, it really just started to hit me after my husband was killed and I saw how certain representatives uh, reacted to what was going on in my husband's case. And that's really for me, that's what it took to make me notice and begin to be aware of the difference and the impact that is had by that is determined by who holds that office. Right. And so now some of us are getting involved by supporting candidates that we believe in and trust to do the will of the people. And other people, like today's guest, are getting involved in a more direct way by stepping out, stepping up and saying, you know what, I'm going to do more than just support the candidate I believe in. I am going to be the candidate I believe in, and I am going to be the candidate that you can believe in as well. So I hope to be able to interview more of these people as time goes on. But today, actually, this is our very first 
guest that we're interviewing who is actively running for office. Tim Stroud is running for a congressional seat in Texas. Tim, I'm so happy to have you sit down with us today and be our inaugural guest who is Ooh, actively inaugural. running for August. Yes. That's a $12 word, and I absolutely uh, love that one. And I want to say a special thanks to, to you for hosting and also our great mutual friend, Marie Cosgrove, for making that click, that yeah. connection to make sure that we could have conversations just like this today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love Marie. I was so intimidated to meet her at first, too, because she is so extraordinary. Marie Cosgrove, for people who may have missed her episode, we interviewed her way back when. I'll put a link. She uh, has overcome a lifetime of horrific abuse and struggles and gone on to do so many great things, including buying the company that fired her. Hello. So when you surround yourself by great people like that, they connect you to other great people like you today, Tim. So I'm, I'm very happy that to have stayed the course and continue to, to meet people like you. Let's get into it. Right. Let's get into it. There was a lot. Let's dive in there. Houston, Texas is waiting. And, and we appreciate you putting us out there to make sure that Everyone in, in District 7, the greater Houston area and the great country of Texas gets to have their voice heard today. <laughs> oh, you Texas. Look, I'm not even going to pretend to not be a little bit of jealous. You know, I'm in New York, New York State, which, <gasps> uh, right? I mean, we have a glimmer of hope now with Cuomo out, but the new person stepping into his shoes is really almost worse than him. So we're holding on for Lee Zeldin to win, uh, to be elected here in New York. But in the meantime, we're looking to people to states like Texas for for hope. You know, if, if Texas and Florida and other states can lead the way and stand strong, then maybe New York can can find its way too. Tim, you, you brought up a great point. And let, let's start there, Barb, because there's a saying of the devil, you know, versus the devil, you don't. And sadly, that's a way that politics has morphed into over the last 200 plus years. And we need to shift gears and make sure that we have elected people just like you said, that know the constituents in their area, whether that is a parish, a county, a state, or the, the nation, to make sure that we're grounded in our beliefs together and we're actually speaking for the people. Yeah. And you, let's get into your background a little bit. Let's get into- Let's do it while I have a, a cup of confidence right here. A cup of confidence. I had a pot of confidence already today, so I'm like a little wired. <laughs> <laughs> so I get a half a cup of coffee in the morning and a half a cup in the afternoon. And my, my friends tell me, it's like, why do you drink coffee? I love the taste. I, I never drink coffee before I was in the army as a combat medic. And I had a life back in radio when I was in college. I used to laugh at the guys around two, three o'clock in the afternoon. They had a fresh pot of coffee on. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Are you guys that old? And now I'm that guy. <laughs> I never I drank coffee day. until I went to Kuwait for the first hearing against the guy that killed my husband. That was when I first drank coffee. And uh, my friend at the time, my fellow widow and the JAG officer, who was a good friend of mine, were very pleased that they succeeded in in getting me hooked on coffee. And that's their impact on my life. But uh, OK, we digress. We digress. So. You served in the military in Iraq. Did you grow up in Texas? No, I, and believe it or not, and, and contrary to, to belief, I did not um, start here in the, the Lone Star, but it's home now. I grew up in Missouri because I'm a third generation military guy. My great grandfather immigrated from Italy and Sicily to, uh, to the United States, and he was a merchant marine. 
And then his son, my grandfather, served in the Air Force, and then my dad served in the Army. And sadly, as uh, my dad transitioned out of Vietnam, went through his station over in Germany, where my sister was born, and went to Fort Riley, Texas, where I called my birthing place. And uh, they got every dime that was uh, that was worth it for me uh, being born. And that was zero because that was on the taxpayer dime, right? It, when you're in the military, it doesn't cost anything extra to, to have a kid. So my parents had two. But sadly, 18 months into my dad's civilian job, as he decided to serve the community, he was killed in the line of duty as a police officer. And I was five, Barb. And I remember it. And people like, oh, you don't remember it. Yes, I do. I remember being this tall and somebody having to hold me up so I could look down at my dad's casket and say goodbye. And I remember my mom hugging me so tight that I I could barely breathe. And I I could still feel her tears. And it's hard not to get emotional about it. But that's where my life changed that day. And I knew there was something I had to do and not just sit around and talk about things. So I told my mom I was going to take care of her that day, which caused her to cry more. (laughs) And I did not know why, because I had just seen my dad on TV a few days ago. And uh, up until the moment I looked at him in the casket, I always thought he was coming back home. And I'm sure you had similar feelings because you're with these people and it's not the names and the stories and the history books of the unknown soldiers. Nope. These are our husbands, our fathers, our sons, our mothers, and our daughters, and our friends that are overseas, around the globe, and in garrison that are serving. And when uh, I lost my mom at age 23, she had cancer, she beat it. And I was so happy. But a couple of years later, because of a bad divorce and a very bad domestic situation, Stress got to her and she had a brain aneurysm when she went to sleep. It's a great way to go when you're 93, but 43, she slipped and went to sleep and had the aneurysm and and didn't wake up. And that reinforced for me to go out to the community and do something, live my life, help out other people. I just had all this energy. I didn't know where to focus it. So I floundered for a couple of years and I was angry. I was so mad at God and everybody. And I still believe in God. It's just, I was mad. And then at age 27, being a late bloomer, I finally joined the military and I served as a a combat medic. And my first duty station was in Germany. Then we went to Kosovo. And then I I went to Fort Hood. I almost said back to Fort Hood. Uh, went to Fort Hood, and then I deployed to Kuwait and Iraq under Operation Iraqi Freedom with the 4th Infantry Division. I still wear my combat medical badge with pride on a daily basis, and I'm not one of those guys, uh, non-commissioned officers or officers that they come out and wear the rank. I'm very proud of my service. And so when I get to share with people of the things that I was able to accomplish as a medic, um, I-, I want to. And I- I hope people know that I don't ever do that in a braggartly fashion. I was not the guy who ran out on on the battlefield uh, like Desmond Doss and saved all those people at Hacksaw Ridge. I was support. And so in the Army, there's infantry and infantry support. That's me. I was right here. And I made sure that 163 guys in the Charlie Company 28th Infantry were alive and well every day, health and welfare calls, getting up at 4.30, so at 5 o'clock 
we could leave the gates with the first sergeant, go get blocks of ice to keep our water cool down throughout the day when it was 127 degrees in the shade. You know, and imagine wearing full battle route of your Kevlar, your protective plates, getting into a Humvee, a tank, or an M11383 as medical personnel. It's 140 plus degrees. Most of us lost over 20 pounds our first month in theater. And we never gained that weight back because we were always on the go. And I loved it. It's not the conflict I loved. I love the camaraderie. I love the teamwork. And I love what we did in Iraq as we toppled the regime to make sure they had this. And I should have painted my finger purple for today uh, in honor of that. But it's the purple finger as we saw our Iraqi counterparts able to go back and build their country. Because sometimes our leaders are saying, we don't country build, we don't do this. In essence, that's exactly what we do. When we take out an oppressive power and we make sure that democracy can live, that's exactly what we're doing. We're giving them hope. If you look at that power curve uh, over the last 200 years when the United States really took off in the last 50 years, look at how many countries now have democracy thanks to the best cop on the block, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay. You just said a lot there. And some of that got me personally as well, because it has such an overlap with my life. You know, the, the thought of your mom holding you up at five years old to see your dad in the casket. I was, my kids were six, five, three, and one when my husband was killed. And I just like completely, completely lost it. And I decided not to let my kids see their dad uh, in the open casket. And sometimes I've wondered if I should have let them and gone, gone back and forth, you know, but at the time that's the decision I made uh, and went with it. So, you know, they didn't get to see that. And I don't know if that it would have been better for them to not or not because the ripple effect then, then figuring out how to raise those kids, those young kids and deal with their grief when they're all different stages and ages and what, what helps them accept. So that's uh just a whole other perspective there that Marvelous, I, I can't go back there. and undo I, it. Right. I, I can't go back. Yeah. But well, let's pause right there because that that's yeah. I, my heart goes out to you because you had four kids as you, as you went through that one. I, I think you made the best decision for all of you at that time. So you could go through those different stages of grief and make sure that you're loving on your kids and your family and also taking time out for yourself. The only thing that I would ask you to do is share your stories of you and your husband uh, with your kids and get other accountability uh, from, from his friends and his family and those he served with, because that's one of the things that my family didn't do oh. because they, they all kept it a secret. It's like, and I wanted to talk about Gary's stories. And if I pan over to uh, this side of my house, you can see um, the first thing I hung up when, when I moved into my house was everything in honor of my father. And I wanted to make sure that I tell those stories because every time we tell those stories, yep. their spirits stay alive. Yeah, we tell plenty of the stories and they abound. So that's a good thing. Oh, that's and great. then the next is your service as a combat medic. And again, tying into my personal experience because that's how we, where we all come from, right? Uh, I know a lot of a bunch of the combat medics that got to my husband on scene that night and got to the commanding officer who was killed with my husband were so profoundly impacted by that, that when it came point for the trial against the guy that killed them, there was actually 
we were we began hearing about how just from that incident alone those combat medics needed to take some time to heal themselves and get some counseling and professional help because they were so disturbed by what they saw and what they experienced and you know i they try to remain separate to detach emotion from it a little bit because you have to 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 proceed otherwise if you your soul would just be too wounded if you just let everything impact you right but they they struggled with this case and and i know they did for years afterwards because i continued to hear from them and their stories and as they would reach out to me and tell me about that so i have huge respect for you guys who do that and even you sort of deflected a little and said this wasn't me i wasn't heroic i didn't do anything like that to put yourself in that situation where you are faced with sometimes you have that happy ending where you get to recover the wounded and save them and they go on for treatment and they're okay or some level of form but uh, many times you don't and you arrive to somebody that you can't help um, my husband was alive and talking for a couple of hours so i think that's what really got to the medics a lot to to, to do that but so i just wanted to let you know same way you just did for me, you know, you, you um, shouldn't deflect that because you put yourself out there and anybody who knows a combat medic, or I guess that's for a paramedic or anybody on who's in that field, right. you deal with things that you have to learn to absorb and find some will to tap into, to get back up there and really believe in what you do. Did you have any cases? I mean, do you carry any thoughts from that service? Were you able to kind of process that internally and find some peace with it and and move on or did was it just not an issue for you at all were you able to just kind of i think every one of our medics and this is where i i get to thank all everybody from first sergeant silva to uh daniel pimatel to uh, who became a command sergeant major same thing as christopher hunter they were amazing non-commissioned officer leaders we had some great officer leaders as well but we were mentally, physically, and spiritually prepared before we left, and we knew we were going to see combat. We lost one of my guys, and uh, he was posthumous, posthumously promoted to corporal. He was a specialist, and that was Heath Pirtle. In the military, we all go by our last names. I was Doc Stroud. Pirtle was a great friend. We At the time, we were both married to German women, and both of our spouses were expecting little girls. And I was stop loss. So I served in theater just around five months. And then the stop loss was lifted. I came uh, home and was, I missed my, my child's birth. And, but I was so grateful to, to be home and see everyone. And as I was transitioning out of the military, I got the call from my captain. Captain Hunt said, I need you to come sign back in. And I was like, oh, am I going back over? And he's like, no, nah, I need you to go to New York City and, and pick up Hurdle. And I was like, oh, man, is, is he wounded? What's going on? And I said, he's not coming home yeah. as in the way that we wanted. And I wound up giving his eulogy. And I was standing in the front or I was standing on stage in, in front of a uh, uh, packed room. I say stage. It was lifted up um, to, uh, to, to honor his life. He was our first wounded, actually killed in, in action from Iraq. And in the first row was his beautiful wife seven and a half months pregnant with a little girl that would never see her father. My life changed again. And I knew it had to be continued with the service that I provided while in the military. So the six figure job that I was going to take 
I didn't, I didn't take it. Instead, I went into a realm of service. And for the first four and a half years after I got out of the military, 10 fingers, 10 toes, nothing's wrong with me, right? Uh, it wasn't until I, until I started helping others find their path that I knew that I needed to talk to someone because of the survivor's guilt and everything else that I had saw, witnessed, and done uh, over in theater. And I found strength coming out of the struggle. And that allowed me an outlet because I was one of the first guys out to connect with all these different organizations. I mean, if you look at some of the legacy groups, we've had some amazing ones throughout the year, Disabled American Veterans, American Legion, the VFW, I don't know if I said uh, DAV, but also Jewish War Veterans. And each of them have their different factions of what they do. And love those organizations, but 2004, I didn't drink a lot, I didn't smoke, and I didn't play bingo so much. I wasn't going to go to one of those organizations, right? That's when the Wounded Warrior popped up. And so they started gaining some momentum. And it's because I truly believe, and I wanted to thank our Vietnam veterans, whether they served in theater or just during that era, because they came back to an ungrateful nation. This is the one where they people, not in my backyard, I don't want these guys, these gals that serve, these baby killers, didn't get the send off, nor the welcome home that they should have. And that was unfair to them. They went through so much. And they said, never again in our history will we treat our heroes in this fashion. And they're the ones who helped start all these other organizations. Colonel David Sutherland wrote a white paper called Sea of Goodwill. And, and at that time, there was about 30,000 veteran service organizations across the United States. And I made it one of my missions with Dr. Catherine Kochula, who founded TexVet. And we launched this bird and this baby eagle grew and took some wings, which was amazing. We started taking all these organizations, putting them under one roof in Texas to make sure we vetted the organizations to make sure that they were doing what they said they were doing. So veterans could connect to them. The VSOs could connect to each other. And very important, the veterans could connect with each other. And that's when people like former mayor of Colleen, Maureen Jewett with Bring Everyone in the Zone, started training these patriots and these veterans for peer-to-peer -peer support. We watched that grow uh, under the, uh, the guidance of uh, Sean Hanna, who's worked with several different agencies. And now it's in the veteran court system and we get to catch veterans and get them back on their road to recovery. That's awesome. And I know that there have been so many organizations spring up over the years or almost none when my husband was killed in 2005. And now there's so many. And like you, I've seen them both as a military widow involved in the community. And I was a VSO for three years. So I saw that as well. So having somebody vet the vetted organizations, you know, is, is really important. And what you said about the Vietnam vets is so profoundly true as well. The way, I don't know if you have seen this or know this aspect of the Vietnam vets and what they've done, not only for those organizations, but the way they have reached out to Gold Star families is uh. absolutely amazing. I mean, before my before I was Gold Star family, before he left, we had had a contractor come in, take all the money we scraped up, run away with it and leave our bathroom in shambles on the very first floor. And three Vietnam veterans showed up at my door one day. I'd never met them before. My husband was still training up to go over. He was going to go over in a couple of weeks. And they said, we know your husband's going to Iraq. We heard about what happened to you. Would it be okay with you? We came and fixed your bathroom for you. 
I'm like, what? I'm like, why, why are you doing this? And they said, and they wouldn't take any money. And they said, you know, Lou is our brother and we take care of our own. I, I was astounded. And then just three weeks later, I had a house full of people because my husband was killed. And there, instead of like nails and stuff all over the floor, there was that bathroom that family could use that was like not a hazard, you know, and crazy. Two Vietnam vets gave me their own purple heart in honor of my husband because the military won't, re- won't award him the purple. And on and on they go. And they come forward and support our families in such every event that there is for Gold Star families that I have been at. There are Vietnam veterans volunteering. It is astounding. Oh, you're exactly right. And that's why I love guys like Bob Gephardt and Bill Palco. They're very active in the greater Houston area to make sure that those who are serving today, they get that wealth and support. Just like you said, I got goosebumps when you're telling your story. And that's when you know that when it's hitting you right in the feels that these are the conversations we need to have. Every time I think about them, I get a little emotional as well. Do you see any correlation? We we saw this correlation and this is going to tie into Houston and your, and your own life as well. Uh, especially in the past year, year and a half, the tide, how it's changed and turned against law enforcement officers and how they are now receiving a lot of the same treatment that Vietnam veterans received where once they were, although law enforcement were once held as heroes, especially here in New York, people used to clap for them when they walked in the room after 9-11 and all this. And now they are hated. They are attacked. We have a friend uh, out in Oregon who was actually hiding teenagers from law enforcement families because their families were being threatened because their parents were in law enforcement because there was such hatred for law enforcement officers about, you know, they're called racist, they're called this, or they're called that. And now law enforcement officers are being villainized much in the same way that Vietnam veterans were villainized. Mm-hmm. It's, like so this. Long. it's like we've done this. Yes. We've turned our backs yeah. on, on those who have sworn to protect us, not just our military, but like you said, our law enforcement. And I grew up in a time, even after my father was killed in the line of duty, my, every one of my family said when we went out to events, because let's just face it, I was full of energy and pew, I was off. I can uh, see that. Uh (laughs) Timmy, if you ever get lost, go find another mom. Uh, My mom would tell me this. Or a police officer. Run towards them if you're in trouble. And now we're teaching our kids to run away. That is the exact wrong answer of what we should be doing. And it baffles me how families get through there. And I talk on both sides of the law, not uh, on both sides of my face, because my dad was killed in the line of duty and my oops, lost one of my lights and my uncle, he was uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, and he uh, he had ran out of uh, water in his radiator and he pulled over to get some some water at a neighbor's house. And instead of asking, he just took the water that the guy called the cops. They were both having a bad day. They escorted my uh, my uncle off the property, and they did so in cuffs. Once they did, he got uh, a little anxious, and he regurgitated, and he uh, choked on his own vomit. He died on that guy's lawn, and oh while gosh. in police custody. And so I know both sides, and I feel um, everything. As medics, we're we're definitely um, empaths, and I never want either one of the the families to go through that. Those who are police officers get in a domestic situation because those are the worst ones to where now you've got to make a snap decision of what is the best good for the most people. And then also to be on the other side when 
people aren't treated fairly or simply mis- mistakes happen. And you can't take off your badge. If you're a police officer, you can't hang it up and be like, yep, hey guys, I'm gonna go race my car and uh, go loot some stuff or say things that I'm not supposed to. You're wearing that badge. You made a lifelong decision uh, to do so. It would be so great if we could course correct and make sure that we're teaching our families uh, not only to respect them, but to become them. I have so many of my friends that were military that went into law enforcement. They're like, I'm done. I am so done uh, of everything that doesn't matter if they're in St. Louis. My uh, old college roommate, Scott, is an amazing guy. And I've got Ed just retiring in Colleen. And I've got Will, who's here in Houston. And they're all like, Tim, the, there's a, a phrase in the military, is the juice worth the squeeze? You're taking that lemon and you're just squeezing everything. At the end of the day, everything that has been squeezed out, was it worth it? And they're at a point in their life now, it's simply not worth it. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, I am. Unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of law enforcement officers just exhausted and broken and given up. And like you, I understand that not everybody who wears the uniform should be wearing the uniform. I mean, I know this personally. It was an American soldier that killed my husband. And so I know that there are also law enforcement officers who are not serving honorably and should be removed from the force. But I also think that when we acknowledge those and we uncover these people and they are pushed out of the force or is exposed or they are held accountable, that should actually be celebrated instead of villainized because it's showing that this that it is working, that the law enforcement officers are finding and rooting out the the bad officers, which is only going to strengthen the force itself, which is only going to better serve the communities. It's like it's like a lose lose. If they find a bad officer and they get rid of them, hold them accountable, expose them, they're villainized because all officers must be bad. But if they don't get the person out, then that's even worse. So what are you know what are they supposed to do? I think we have to work with them and certainly right. we have and, to yeah let's let's pause there because that's when your vote and your voice yeah. becomes so important in your community. If you don't like something before, it becomes tra- tragic. If you see a pattern in the medical world, is something more chronic or is it more acute? If you see something that is chronic, just a history of bad behavior, go to your chief of police, assistant chief of police. And if it's them, go to the council. They report to someone whether it is a, uh, a school board, I'm getting a, a little bit off topic, Topic whether they work for the school board, the county or the city, that law enforcement officer or those people, they answer to someone. And if, if your voice isn't being heard, you got to get more people around you or shocker, run for the offices that can control those. And that's where we're at today because yeah. after 16 years of just watching the bad patterns, that have happened in Texas and, and in the greater Houston area. I, I see our elected officials, especially on the congressional level, just stamp, stamp, stamp um, bad agendas. And I hate to dime out Nancy Pelosi, but she, she seems to have her own agenda. Mm-hmm. And we have elected officials, instead of voting what the constitu- constituents want, they're simply doing it to remain in power, which is another reason we need term limits. 
I was literally going to ask you about that. I'm literally writing down now term limit, like to, to remind myself to ask you about that. Oh, you know, where do you stand? Yeah. Let's get into these issues. Let's get into these issues. And then I want to talk about actually running for Congress itself, like the steps yeah. and, and all that. Okay. So right. let's get, let's get into some of the issues that you would be facing and addressing as a congressional representative term limits. I'm glad to hear you say that. I don't understand why it's so hard. I mean, I do understand why it's so hard to get term limits passed, but you know, I feel like if congressional representatives wanted to do something to really earn the trust of their constituents, they would impose term limits. I think that's <laughs> absolutely. This yeah. is just it, it, it's one of those things that I've talked about with, with others. And I, I can't uh, speak to uh, some of the uh, the congressmen that are currently in office in the, the greater Houston area, specifically on this one. But I've had many conversations with those in the, the greater Houston area. We all agree that change is difficult, especially for those in power. They don't want to give up that power. And when you became a career politician, it changes you. Not a career politician. Spent the first almost 50 years of my life serving. And it doesn't matter if it's my country or my community. I'm going to continue doing the same. Um, and I only want to do a certain amount of time. It almost sounds like a prison sentence. Uh, as an elected official, uh, as a congressman, that could be two, could be three terms. I'm not exactly sure, but I want to transition out of there. Could be up or could be out. I got out uh, and do some amazing things in the community because you don't have to be an elected official to get things done. And I've proven that over the last 16 years by banding together with so many different organizations and amazing people. Rotary International is just one of those. It's an apolitical group as people from both sides of the major two parties, but also the independents and tea parties as well, and the libertarian parties. These are the guys and gals that get out in this 100-year organization, and they've eradicated polio around the world. They're the ones that build the, the ramps for veterans in our community, do the food drives, and, and make sure that we're having amazing things like Operation Turkey. Two years ago, we fed 6,000 people in Houston. Last year, 8,000. This year, we're on track to feed 10,000 people. Wow. This is not going down to George R. Brown and serving up a, a sloppy joe and a, a ice cream scoop of potatoes. We roast these turkeys and smoke them. And these butterball birds get sent out to great families in the Houston area. So that's just one way. But when you look at uh, serving in the community, absolutely. Once you put a timeline on it, now it's a goal, not just a dream, right? Yes. And you reminded me of that the very last time we spoke, the first and last time we spoke, right? When you when you held me to the clock on the issue that I had brought up to you. All right. Where do you stand now? There are... So many things that are uh, an instant trigger uh, for people, right? Right. So let's get into some of those. Where do you stand on vaccine mandates? Ooh, that's a tricky one because um, as a former combat medic, I don't know. Um, like You have I, so I, much I, stuff pumped into you. Oh, uh, <laughs> and I was the guy that was putting it in you. Right. And, and so it's like this: uh, the docs says, give you this vial, put in there, make sure that everybody's inoculated and vac vaccinated properly before we go over to, to, to theater. Take a breath, America. It's not just the vaccine. We need to lead, lead healthy lives. And, and for me, I, I noticed the hypocrisy out there. People who are guzzling uh, soda water, smoking cigarettes, not exercising, saying, you must get the vaccine. 
vaccines are great when they're proven and they've been tested properly and to do a lot of great things in a community. But there's that asterisk. Not every inoculation, vaccination, or vitamin shot is good for every American. And that's why you have to have regular checkups, eat healthy foods, not the junk that we're pushed on on a daily basis, and then giving our bodies time to recuperate and rebuild. Our immune systems are absolutely amazing when they're fueled and equipped properly to do so. And during a pandemic, yes, we do have to take precautions. And so I am for the vaccination, but I'm against mandatory vaccinations. People are like, how can you be on one? It's, it, it's very simple. It, it's, um, it's like saying, hey, are you pro-life or pro-choice? Yes, I am pro-life. And I will go on the books and saying that every child should be born and should be in a position to where they get to lead their lives, especially here in America. We have won the genetic lottery when we're born, uh, born within our 50 states and, and our territories. You get a life that's not promised on uh, the other continents and in the other countries. However, there are instances where not carrying that baby to full term means a healthy life for that mama, mother. And that needs to be taken into a, a, an account. And so we look at those two issues. They're, they're kind of tied together because you hear a lot of women saying, my body, my choice. Um, a lot of Democrats that are saying that, uh, uh, saying, I am pro-choice. And uh, there's like, I need to protect my body. Mm, how come they're the ones not talking about the vaccinations uh, today? It seems like they all went quiet all of a sudden. And for, for those who, that made that, that marks and those, those pink hats uh, on Washington, where are you fighting for uh, our families for their choices today? And for the families that were bringing over from Afghanistan as they're fleeing another regime change and, and putting things together, it seems that the left has gotten awfully quiet. Yes, they are quiet in terms of defending or going out there and actually initiating conversations about what's going on. But God forbid anybody says, hey, I'm still a little leery about the vaccine or you know, Biden could have done this better. Then they come out and they just attack. Right. That's that's my experience anyway. But it does go both sides. There's people on the right who are also initiating or provoking just arguments, which I feel are meritless. I mean, what's the value? Right. What is the value of getting into a conversation if you're just doing it to piss each other off or to yell at each other? You have to have like some kind of end goal in mind if you're going to go down that road. I think you're exactly right. It seems like. Yeah. 5%, and it's a fringe element that I, I've noticed. Maybe it's a little bit more, but let's swag some numbers. It's probably 5% on the, the right, 5% on the left. And these are the extremists on both sides. They bring a bag of rocks and all they're doing is lobbying them at each other and making sure that they're seen and heard on social media so we get their 15 minutes of fame. Got to come together and really work together. And I've been saying this for the last 30 years of my adult life, but also uh, I am opti optimistic, but I'm very pragmatic. Uh, and I've seen where things shift when there's Republicans in power in the House, the Senate, and, and for Congress and, and in the White House. And we have the opportunity to get things done and we don't have the backbone uh, to vote our convictions. There's a problem. Um, but also when Democrats are in the power and they, they've talked about for the last four to six years of how we're going to work together. 
And then once they're empowered, it's like, now we're going to bully pulpit and we're going to push everything through. If you haven't seen Wag the Dog, it's more about um, how social media and media is uh, basically the tail is wagging the dog. Pay attention to that one. Um, I'm not talking about just wars. I'm talking about when there's something going on over here, you need to watch out what's going over here. There's a lot of focus on uh, disasters that, and wars that are going on right now in Afghanistan and with COVID. Pay attention. What's going on in the House and Senate right now? What bills are getting pushed through? Not just on the national yeah. level. What's going on in your state? What are they trying to slide right through when trillions of dollars go through? You have to ask your question. Ask the question, where's that money going? Follow the money on this one. It's ridiculous when they talk about the vaccinations that the media and say, oh yeah, go get it. It's free. It's, it's not, not free. free. You got your tax goes, dollars pay yeah. for it. Mm-hmm. Your roads, your bridges, your highways, your schools. If you pay taxes, and I hope everybody watching this does uh, in some form or fashion, those are your dollars. You get to vote with your dollar. And if you don't like the way your state is handling it, you can move to another state and you get to vote with your voice and make sure that's uh, heard. And that's the other one thing I want to talk about, voter integrity. How is it that I can serve in the army and go halfway around the world to where someone who votes holds up a purple finger and I can tell that they've voted? But even in my own district, I can't tell if they voted or not. Before I moved into the, uh, this beautiful house that my buddy Mario found for me before it went on the market, because the, the market's crazy right now, I lived in a, a fancy schmancy um, apartment location that's still in the same district. And there's about 500 people that live in that little community. And instead of putting um, sender not here or recipient not here, return to sender on all the mail, they started a bad trend. They set it on a desk to the left. And I actually take time to get to know people. Shocker, I know. And my mailman's name is Cliff. And I got talking to Cliff. And I was like, hey, Cliff, what's going on with all of the the mail-in ballots that, that go to the wrong places? And he's like, look at the counter, Tim. There was 13 of them right there. And he made sure, uh, and I watched as he secured those ballots, but they were just sitting on the counter. Anybody could have picked them up and, and moved them away. Luckily, we had somebody that was responsible and took possession of those. But what about the people who got it that weren't there? I mean, that didn't live there um, because they just came through delivering food or delivering uh, one of the uh, Uber meals or picking someone up. It was all available right there. And how is it that as a veteran to go into the VA or to get a fishing license or hunting license or to get a driver's license, I have to prove who I am. But once you've received that, why don't you be able to use that an an approved state or federal document uh, showing people who you are? I think it's ridiculous that we don't mandate that. Voter ID. Absolutely. We have to have integrity of it because... Um, I can't speak to the efficacy uh, of how things were stolen in the last election, but I can tell you um, with our uh, our own county, our counties here in the greater Houston area, there were a lot of votes and there are people being prosecuted right now for going over the line and doing the wrong things. And that's why we actually need more people to serve as uh, voting judges in their communities. Yeah. A hundred percent. I don't know. Election integrity is something that I was going to speak with you about as well to see where, are you confident? Are you confident now 
not even talking about this last election. Are you confident in this in the midterm elections, in the integrity of those? Are you confident that the results will reflect the actual will of the people, or do you feel like maybe in Texas, I do believe we've taken some uh, some progress, uh, some forward progress, if you will. And other states are different. Number one, you do not want a national mandate of 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 how um, the the voters um, the voter counts work. However, the integrity should be proven on each individual state that's going through. And Texas is taking some steps uh, on that one as well. As long as the uh, the Democrats uh, don't come around and subvert everything that we're doing. And again, again, it comes back to. Um, the the voting judges. It's like that police officer we were just talking about. Why are locks on doors? It's to keep the honest people out. If somebody wants to break into your home, your car, your business, they're going to do it regardless uh, of uh, the security that you you have there. And there are just bad people that have their own agendas. But you put a police officer outside or a security guard who kind of looks like a police officer. Now you have a deterrent. So those election judges, those people that are there, one from each side, as a deterrent for those who would do nefarious things, I think that's going to help out right there with the, the voting security. But for me, it dovetails into additional security. When I, I think of security, obviously, with Texas, our southern borders. Uh, and it's not because, oh, we're just letting over people that that um, that are oppressed and want to come over here. Bring them. We let in a million people a year go through the proper channels. We want you uh, in the United States. We want you in Texas. Some of my best friends, when they served in the military, could speak very little English. One of them got recycled three times. That means he had to go through basic training till he could pass the test in English. He's still a great friend of mine. I love that he worked so hard to become an American. But as we let people cross our borders with our crime, that should be one of our top priorities because you look at Houston. Sadly, we are number one in child and sex trafficking. And I, I banded together with four other organizations, uh, nonprofits, and with Rotary. And we are making effective changes right now to cripple and dismantle uh, the tirade that's been going on in this area. Can you imagine if any of your kids? We're out with you at an event, whether it's a mall, a Lee Greenwood concert that we had on Saturday night to, to raise food uh, for those who are food impoverished. You look around and you can't see one of your babies. You're going to get upset and your mind's going to go to that dark place, right? And so we need to make sure that we're building safe communities so you can see something and say something that ties back into our schools, our churches, training on what to do and making sure that we're not just being compliant with those who are pushing their agendas and uh, their fear on us. And that includes our schools, another controversial issue. Uh, I met with a, a group of people and we talked about this for three hours of critical race theory. How horrible is it that uh, we're taking history, we've got that eraser and we're just taking things out of the book. Instead, we should be building. We have so much information that we can validate back to George Washington, and now we can put that into the books. Yep, if somebody had uh, oppressed somebody or built them up or done something amazing that we didn't know about, put it all in there. Yeah, it has to be abridged, but guess what? There's going to be a day and age where we don't have the, the paperback books. We have abilities 
to make these huge PDF um, materials available so our school kids can read them all the way up to our collegiate level, put great things in there, tie it together so the bad things don't do again. But the great things, let's keep building. We look at uh, Texas. And uh, if you think about the the, the trucks that have the, the Texas edition, the F-150 of the Lone Star. So you got Chevy, Ford, Dodge, uh, Toyota, and all these other ones. There's only one truck that's made in Texas, and it's an assembly plant in San Antonio. That's Toyota. Why aren't we building more stuff? Instead, we ship it overseas, and uh, I find that it, it just boggles my mind that they can ship over billions of dollars worth of stuff on these mega freighters. We unload them. We take all their stuff and we send them back empty. We send them back empty. We still put tariffs and levy uh, fines on them for not taking our stuff. They're paying them. Why? Because if they take just a few connexes back to port over there, then they have to go through security. They have to look at everything. But if they have nothing, they can go right on through. They'll pay those fines because we're buying their stuff. Did you find that a little alarming? Yeah, it makes me makes me insane. Even... For for what we do, we look for some swag to give out, some patriotic stuff, and finding, getting a shipment of flags in and seeing made in China is like, what? I even, you know, for the flight we took last week, we have to wear the masks. And so I ordered some, some masks and I get this 50 pack of masks in and where are they made? China. So I'm buying masks for a virus that came from China and I'm buying the masks from China and I'm putting that thing on my face and I'm just so uncomfortable with all of it. And on and on we could go, I should introduce you to Don Buckner. You definitely need to meet him. He launched uh, made in America.org and he works with companies who create their products in America. He's promoting American manufacturing. You definitely want to connect with him and he's in Florida. So he's another free man, you know, Texas, Florida. Absolutely. Make the connection, (laughs) Barb. I will absolutely connect you actually at our event that I'll talk about later. um, We hope to bring him in as well. Where do you feel on censorship and is it impacting you? Dave and I and our work and what we're doing, we are absolutely feeling the weight of shadowing and some censorship. And a lot of the posts that we go to put out or promote are refused or rejected because they say they're political when in fact, there may be just a flag on there or something. Uh, are you feeling that as well? And are the people that you work with or your colleagues uh, feeling that? Or, or is it not hitting you? Yeah, it, it's like if you've uh, uh, read some of the books like 1984 uh, and uh, Fahrenheit 451, you talk about the different levels of oppression and, and censorship. And I love reading books. Why? Because it's very rare that I read something or listen to a podcast or watch something. And I agree with everything. It rarely, rarely happens. But guess what? I can take that nugget out of that book is like, ooh, I love that one. There are some beautiful things written in bad books. Uh, and so I need to absorb those and, and, and hear those. And I love that we have bad opinions. I really do uh, in the United States because I get to learn from them. Just like I learned from my stepfather of what not to do and not how to uh, treat a woman, not how to treat uh, children that are grow up in your household. And I'll never do those things. And so I need to see an opposing view and I want to listen to it with our, oh, yeah, freedom of speech, something about it in, in our Bill of Rights, I do believe. And But when you start centering people, groups in our country, we need to be very aware of what's going on. And they're leading so many sheeple 
right into this pen and they're telling them what they can and cannot do. We have to stand up for our First Amendment rights. And it's ridiculous when the big box stores, the big four, if you will, they are making sure that one side is heard over another. And it's really changing the course of our history because it's going back into the school system of, of what they're teaching. And you hear about liberal colleges. Why in there is there even such a term of, of having that? But yes, to your answer, I and my colleagues have seen that. And I got one of my friends, she just told me she's in Facebook jail for the next 30 days because she what she posted it simply had the American flag on it and, and how she was standing for justice. And she's like, how in the world did this get on the naughty list? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think you and I were talking, um, Goya was a great example of that, how that company, he, all he did was stand up next to the president of the United States. And didn't he also, he also donated food under Obama's campaign, correct? And yes. stood with president it. Obama and right. he was celebrated, but then he does the same thing, same exact thing that he did to donate such enormous amounts of things to, that he did to donate his company and himself came forward to support others in the same way he did for Obama and Obama, he was celebrated and Trump, that act of kindness and charity crushed him. He was crushed a bit. Right. And he, uh, internally with his own team, he had to answer to the board. Um, but he's got some great people. I mean, Bob's the president and you've got Maita, you, you've got Luz that works out there in Cydia and she lives in Alexandra. They are just beautiful Americans. They want to make sure that, you know, they donate so much food and, and money to support a lot of different organizations to make sure if you're food impoverished, you get food. They don't have a little little sheet. This is a Republican. Oh, yeah. Democrat. No. Independent. Eh, maybe we'll send you some of the old <laughs> beans. No. If you need food, they are going to donate that to you and they support they just put $2 million into a fund. And I was lucky to sit down with, with Bob and his team. It was supposed to be for 30 minutes. Next thing you know, we're talking about Congress and, and, and doing some great things in the community. It turned into a six-hour meeting because these people are so passionate. They took a family business and made it into a worldwide conglomerate. We need more people yeah. just like that that have the strength to vote their convictions. I was just talking with my cousin. And uh, she's like, Tim, I love you and I'm going to support you and I'll vote for you and send you some money. I was like, well, well, you can't vote for me. We live in Chicago. You might cast some three votes down here in Texas. And she's like, oh, I'll support you. And I said, well, that's great. She's like, I just don't agree with you on some issues. I go, let's talk about those. So we started talking about them. And guess what? She really doesn't disagree with me. And, and I was like, guess what? You're a Republican. She's like, no, I'm not. And I was like, <laughs> yes, you are. But somewhere in that mix, you got off course and you believe what somebody else with an agenda item has. And that's what my mentor taught me is to own my time and own my thoughts and convictions. And that's what we're doing is making sure that we're having conversations just like this one so we can help and support not only in our communities, but those who are serving, whether on our police force or around the world. And I, I wanted to say a special thank you right now to uh, one of my. Uh, former soldiers. And uh, Mike Contreras is a command sergeant major, and he's at Landstuhl Medical Regional Center over in Germany. I got to meet with him uh, last month. My uh, eldest daughter, Amber, and I went to go visit, see how we could volunteer, and I wanted to lift him up. Instead, he presented me with this challenge coin. And for those who are not uh, familiar with the challenge coin, the challenge coin is to thank those 
who have done something to impact their lives, whether it's on a local level or uh, something that reaches around the world. And that's exactly what he did. He recognized me in front of his colonel and his people. And he said, thanks for teaching me to move forward a little each day, to read books, to get into programs, do those things. Because now he's in charge of over 2,000 people at that medical center. And they're the ones that are taking in the wounded from Afghanistan and other wars. And they're bringing in those refugees. I have to treat them there. And I'll definitely send you the links to where people can support them at the the USO and the FRGs and uh, with the uh, Red Cross. Yeah, please do. Thank you. And here in the last couple of minutes, before I ask our our final question, I would like to hit you up for maybe three minutes of advice for anybody who is considering launching some sort of public campaign themselves, if if you need to stick specifically to a congressional campaign, because that's what you're doing. Uh, But for the regular person who says, you know what, I think I'm going to step in, put my hat in the ring because I don't see anybody else that I want to support running Mm -hmm. for office in my area. So I'm going to step forward and be that person. What would your advice to them be starting with nothing? That is the the best question you could have asked me, Barb. First of all, there is no such thing as a regular person. If you're an American, you need to consider a running or supporting. In In the army for us, there's infantry and infantry support. As an infantry support, that's what I did for the last 16 years as I've been out of the military and I've helped uh, everything from presidential, gubernatorial, mayoral, house of representatives, all the way down uh, school board to student council. And I laugh about this and think about it, but my daughter ran for student council when she was in first grade. She actually um, interviewed representative Jimmy Don Acock. She used her notes, she presented, and she blew everyone out of the water. We need more people that will go out and take that step forward and have the strength to stand up for what they know is right and tell their educated and well-researched points. And that's the other thing. It's too often times we get on social media. It's like, oh, here's what so-and-so said. But over here, so-and-so said that. Do the research. Be your own fact checker. Don't worry about social media and and make sure that you are talking with people you need to go into your local chamber of commerce, join a civic organization. Could be Rotary, Kiwanis, the Lions Club, the Elks, somebody who's doing something great in your area, lock arms with them and find out how you can be a force multiplier. And then make sure that you are taking some classes on education and how to speak. Back in the day, we called them orators. And these are the guys and gals that researched and spoke very fluently. You don't have to have a college education to speak your heart, but you do need to do it in a fashion where people can understand you, communicate, and not just a lot of yelling and ranting. That looks great for 15 minutes. Where's the substance behind that? Make sure you have the heart of a warrior that you're able to move forward for those effective changes, whether that is voting on something local or you're looking uh, at the White House to be the first of whatever nationality that you are to, to serve and to make sure that you're representing the people that are around you. When you start looking at your friends, look at your top five. Are they lifting you up? Are they pulling you down? If they're lifting you up, make sure you get connected with their groups as well and go out in the community and listen. Listen to the people and make sure that you're in alignment with them and the best path for your community. And I, I know 
that you're going to get a lot of education and experience in, in the process. I did the same thing. I've been interviewing all of the candidates, whether they ran successfully or not over the last 10 years. And I'm, I'm proud to represent my community as we move forward in Congress and District 7. It's going to be a little different this year because Texas is going to get two new districts. We didn't usurp any land from Oklahoma or Louisiana. So guess what? We got to squeeze it within our borders and move some things around. So there will be some changes. And I will be cheering on those who've already thrown their hats into the ring on the Republicans, even if they're running against me. And that shocks some people. Why? Because we need to come together as a community, as a country, and as a party to make sure that we're doing the right things. Love it. All right. And the last question I'll ask you here is a question we ask our guests because this is part of the biggest reason we started American Snippets, even though we have evolved since then. We carry this with us. Part of the reason we started was just a few years ago when we first noticed the attack on America and patriotism. And then we noticed people not just giving up on the American dream, but denouncing the American dream and saying it is not only not alive and well, it's only for specific people. And somehow the American dream became a negative thing. And me knowing, you know, our family, what we went through so that everybody can build their American dream, that started to impact me personally. And I needed to spin it around. That's why we started finding all these people who are building their American dreams and inspiring and guiding and encouraging other people to do the same. The one differentiating factor we make sure to point out is that the American dream is not the cookie cutter version of the white picket fence and the two and a half kids and the two weeks vacation and the minivan in the driveway for everybody. That's the beauty of it is that it is different for every single person. We all have our own idea of what our own American dream looks like, which is why we love to ask our guests. And I'm asking you now, what is your version of the American dream? And thank you for asking that. It's a great question to, to end on. And for, for me and my family, we grew up Pope. I, I joke about it. We couldn't afford the OR on four. And so it was very <laughs> modest uh, growing up after dad died. And, and to get to a point where I do have substance around my life, not this house. My substance around my house is my friends and the community that we built a, around us. And I, I have a question, not just for you, but for everybody that, that's listening on here. And it's tied to our freedom. And so 20 years ago, somebody knocked on our door and knocked us down. Uh, they took down the, uh, the towers, they, they wrecked planes in, into the Pentagon, and, and they crashed around our country. You remember exactly where you were. Somebody's going to ask that question in the next two weeks. Where were you? Where were you when the American dream started to falter? When you saw that Lady Liberty was not holding up uh, as well as she should have. The scales of justice have been tilted. Are you going to talk in 20 years to your family, whether it's your kids, your grandkids, and say, I did nothing while good men suffered? You need to make sure that you are taking a stance today. So when someone asks in 20 years what freedom means to you and what the American dream means is that you can stand tall and you can share the stories like J.P. Lane, who's a double uh, amputee from Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan war, Maggie Peterson, who started her own organization. Uh, and Jeff Picard, who got shot in the shoulder, now runs the Texas Waves Project that teaches veterans and a dive buddy how to move forward. These are the men and women who, when they're asked, where were they? They were standing up for America and standing up for your freedom. Love it. Thank you. And if people want to follow up with you, learn more about your campaign, learn more about you, how they can get behind you or just study you a little bit, where's the best place for them to go? 
I don't think anybody will would allow to study me. I, uh, but they can keep up with the campaign at timstroud.com. It's T-I-M-S-T-R-O-U-D.com. And they can uh, connect with us, whether they want to roll up their sleeves and get involved in the campaign, donate their time, their talents, or treasures. Come cheer us on, and we're going to lift up everybody in the process and build a great country again. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck and anything Dave and I can do to support you. We will, including we hope to see you at our event in January, even though it's in Dallas, it's not in Houston, but you should, you should come anyway. That's so, a short drive away. Yeah. Yeah. It's just four hours, right? So yes, we look forward to that and meeting you in person. But in the meantime, we will stay connected and follow up with you and look for opportunities to support you in our own way. And we thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Barb, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to having a cup of Texas freedom uh, when you come, uh, <laughs> come visit us in the Lone Star. Excellent. Thank you. All right, everyone, that wraps up another episode of the American Sippets podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you got any value out of this episode, all that we ask each and every week is that you please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Share this podcast with a friend. Share one of your favorite episodes on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at American Snippets. Again, a five-star review on iTunes really goes a long way in helping us get these stories out there in front of more people and help us grow our audience because we are on a mission to change the perception in this country, celebrate patriotism and all the things that make America great. And we are doing the same thing at our live event in Texas, January 7th and 8th, 2022, at the Great American Summit. Make sure you reserve your ticket today. Ticket sales are now open. Go to greatamericansummit.com. Again, we appreciate you being here today. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you really are. <music>